All right, good morning, and we are going to Mark's Gospel and chapter 15. And we've been looking in the Gospel of Mark now for a long time, and I know some of you are, are waiting to have it move on from the Gospel of Mark, probably. I always tell you, though, we do a variety of teaching here. We try to do other uh, books in the other services, and uh, as we go through them verse by verse, so uh, if you can come out, you'll have a variety, all right? <laughs> but I, as we go through this and we look at uh, the Gospel of Mark, we come to a familiar passage uh, and, and probably a lot of it has been familiar, but it's been by way of remembrance as we go through this that we've been hopefully stirred up. And as we look at the Word of God, uh, that's the effect that it has on us, doesn't it? It has a marvelous way of digging into the heart and uh, turning up that ground that gets so hard so often. And uh, we come to that. We, we are in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 15 and to 25. And I want to look at that this morning. This account is of the crucifixion of Christ. And we've been looking at the trials and uh, from Mark's gospel. And now we get to that aspect of the crucifixion. Uh, by the way, if Christians worldwide are familiar with any Bible stories, obviously the crucifixion is central, isn't it? And the resurrection. So we come to that. It says, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own robes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we come before you. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for this account of Jesus as he goes to Calvary, as he goes there to the cross. We ask, Lord, that as we, as we open up this text this morning, Again, that you would open it to our minds, our hearts, that we would receive it with gladness, be appreciative of what Christ did for us in salvation. Thank you, Lord, for so great salvation, and help us not neglect it today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We go there to the beginning, and you have uh, in verse 15 the picture there of Pilate and we've looked at these different images and scenes sort of in our mind's eye I hope anyways as we've gone down and I want to take this morning and look at the scenes of the path to Calvary the Golgotha in the Hebrew the place of the skull the place where Jesus was crucified and if we were there that day and and we were among that crowd perhaps or someone who's just a spectator a, a fly on the wall so to speak and we were able to watch what was going on and take it in, I think it would be uh, quite a moment. It really would. It would be something that really is the climactic event of all of human, human history, of all of history, really, when God 
in his own time, as the book of Galatians said, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And, of course, he was born of a virgin, wasn't he? He walked this earth for 33 years, and then when he was in his prime, he was cut off. Cut off from the land of the living. He was crucified. And the Bible talks about that. Last week, we ended looking at this crowd that called out and said they wanted Barabbas Uh, this criminal who was also scheduled for execution to be released instead of Jesus. And the scene shifts from there to now Jesus and he's standing before some soldiers. And that's the first scene I want to look at this morning as Jesus stands before these soldiers. And by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew's account of this, you find out there that a few extra details that are added And again, as you study the gospel records, the four gospels, you need to do it in what we call a harmony of the gospels. Look at them and see what all of them say, and you get the bigger picture of the details that are there. Some gospel writers include certain miracles that others don't. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. There's lots of skeptics out there that like to point that out. Well, there's differing differing views and all that, and so which one's right? They must all be wrong, and they, they say that, and not at all. I reiterate the very fact that the Gospels harmonize in the very sense that uh, Matthew, again, he writes to the Jew and Mark to the Roman, more or less. And you have Luke, he writes to the Jew, the Gentile world as well. And then John presents Jesus from his eternal perspective, the deity of Christ on display. And all of them harmonize and they, they provide that big picture. You come to Matthew 27, verses 24 to 25. It says there of the same account, when Pilate saw that he had not... Uh, could not prevail at all, it says, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hand before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And again, that's Matthew 27. So that crowd not only hollered out Barabbas to deliver Barabbas instead of Jesus, but they even made an oath. They made an oath that said this, you bring Jesus and have him crucified and basically his blood is on us and on our children. Wow. Because Pilate saw that this was nothing more than uh, you know, a trial that was, well, it was an unfair trial. This was a just person in his mind. Of course, he was the righteous Jesus. Fully just, isn't he? The only one. Well, we go back to Mark 15 here and you read of the various things that happen. In verse 15, it says, They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated the place of the skull. Then they gave him, uh, well, I'm not quite in the right verse. I'm sorry about that. Go back one more slide. And it says, And Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him. Now, the scourging process was committed by those same soldiers, and then he was led off to be crucified after that. And Maybe you are familiar a little bit with some of this because usually around the Easter time, prior to Easter, we usually have some messages on the cross and on the crucifixion. And I know I have taught on this before and the scourging process. But I, I want to pause for a moment and think about that for a moment because it's, it's recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, this is not a, a picture Bible, all right? There weren't photographs taken. And You can only imagine what it really would have been like, although our world is certainly filled with lots of violence and we don't have to imagine very far in our mind to see what man can do to other people, right? 
and the violence that can be perpetrated. The scourging process was done in such a way that it brought punishment and it instilled a fear upon the whole of society. And the Romans had developed certain techniques that they made so that when criminals were brought and there was, if they were to be scourged, uh, they were to be punished, punished publicly. And in doing so, like I said, it would put a seriousness about you know, crime. And so there was a reason that they had come up with it. Nevertheless, if you found yourself at the end of a Roman whip, which was the instrument most often used, uh, it was a pretty harsh punishment. It really was. Uh, the Roman word was flagellum, and it means to strike. And that's the word that they used to describe the whip that was used. Uh, it was often a sh- very short-handled kind of leather whip that was woven uh, on a handle, uh, maybe overlaid by, or wood at the center of it. And at the end of it would be these uh, strips of leather, all right? And they weren't very long, but long enough so that it would go across somebody's back and maybe a little bit longer than that so that it would come around the side and embedded uh, on the ends of these pieces of leather. Uh, you can imagine just getting hit with a, a leather belt or something like that. That wouldn't be good, right? Uh, but they would also embed shards of sometimes broken bone, okay, like a lamb's femur. That's very, very hard bone. And they would embed shards of that or lead balls, or they would embed uh, other sharp objects, things like that, and they would put those on those different tails of the whip. They weren't just one whip. So you might have bones and lead and some other sharp object or something like that that was built right into the end of it. And the design of it was such that it would actually shred your back. You can imagine a ball of lead, a very heavy ball of lead hitting your back. It would kind of you know, cause a bruise instantly and it would crush the the flesh is really what it would do and that next whip would come in with a shard of bone and it would tear it open and they would do this and the scourging process was typically 40 lashes of the whip minus one they always did a minus one because in case they overdid it the actual the punishment could now turn to the one that was delivering the, the stripes right The book of Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed, in Isaiah 53, referring to the Messiah. You realize that Jesus bore our punishment, our scourging, by he himself not having need for punishment, right? He was innocent, he was perfect, he had never sinned, but in reality that's what my sin cost him, and that's what your sin cost him as he stood there and he took that. Now, the scourging process was done in such a way that the criminal was often, as they were bound, and we know Jesus was bound, they would take and they would take those ropes around maybe the wrists or whatever, and they would throw them up over a beam or a tree limb or something like that and lift somebody just high enough so they were on their ball of their feet and they, they, you're just on your tiptoes. That would stretch the back right out and it would be like some, you know, kind of a balloon almost, a hard surface and a, you know, elastic surface. And when it was struck, it would, it would open up. Some of these men that specialized in scourging, they were called lictors, they were soldiers who, who were trained in this. They boasted that they could lay a man's back to the bone in three whips. Can you imagine delivering 39 whips to someone. When the Bible says for us that he was scourged, it doesn't go into all those details, but that's what Jesus experienced for us. He bore our sins. And when it says he bore our sins, that's what it meant. (laughs) He took the punishment for us. 
The Bible records for us these very things. I'm thankful that Jesus is the one. The Bible says of this, Isaiah 50, verse 6, written 700 years before Christ came, and it refers to the Messiah. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me. Do you realize that Jesus did this willingly? When someone says, I gave them something, that means you willingly give. And when Jesus went to the cross, and even before he gets to the cross, he did so willingly. He gave his back to them. And my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. Now, we don't see that in the gospel record where his beard is being plucked out, but that's what took place. And when Jesus is referred to on the cross, and it says his, his face was so marred that it was beyond recognition. They could not identify him as a man even. They just saw this piece of shredded flesh. I think we sterilize that a bit in our world when you see a picture maybe of, of Jesus on a cross or a crucifix or things like that. And we've kind of sterilized the whole the whole crucifixion that took place. It was an awful thing. There would have been lots of blood. And by the way, the blood of Christ was splattered over everything. And some have, have, have taken that and said, well, you know, the actual fluid of Christ saves us in that, you know, the fluid that come, came out of him, if I could only somehow go back and put that in a cup and drink of that or something, I would be saved. And there's lots of people that believe that. The blood of Christ is the method in which God saves us and his blood was offered. You cannot have salvation without the blood of Christ. Don't get me wrong. But listen, those soldiers were covered in the blood of Christ. But they did not appropriate it by faith. And only through faith in Christ, his vicarious death, his atoning death, and by accepting that sacrifice, by faith you are saved. So don't get it wrong. It's not some magic potion. It's it's not some mystery that comes in. Uh, where wine is is changed into blood or anything like that. It is the faith in the finished work of Christ that he paid our our sins and he paid once for all. And the Bible's clear on that. I'm not saying that to be divisive or anything. I'm just saying that's what the Bible teaches. And it's clear that they struck him. And it says here, my face, and it says, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You can imagine if you were standing there, of course, Jesus, as he's there, he's, he's being bound. And he, they could have, by the way, uh, at any given time, he could have easily torn asunder any of those ropes. He himself being God the Son, all-powerful. But yet he gave up the use of that perfection of omnipotence to the will of the Father. And there he is as he gives his back to them and his face as well. And they come by one after another probably and they spit in his face. And yet he takes the shame of that. He takes the abuse. Those things that go on. They also scoffed at him. The Bible records for us there back in Mark's gospel again. And I'm going to move ahead here to this slide as I'm looking at it anyways. And it says this, that then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. That's the whole group, okay? And they clothed him with purple. And it says they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. There's a mockery of worship going on here is really what's happening. When the Bible says they worship, they, they actually, 
uh, took and they fell, uh, as it were, before him as if he was a king in their mind. But it was all a mockery is all it was. They didn't believe. They didn't do any more than what they had done before. They made sport of him is really what they had done. They scoffed at him. Most likely, and the, the band that is talked about there is about 600 men, all right? Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, and a cohort, it was, the, it was the Latin term for the unit, the garrison. And it was about 600 men. Now, I, I thought of that. It says it called the whole garrison. Is it possible that 600 men went through and spit upon Jesus? One after another after another. Maybe. Sometimes we think maybe two or three did that. But can you imagine standing there and you can't move because your hands are bound and, and 600 people come by and, <clears throat> and right in your face. He would have been just dripping with saliva. The shame involved in that. I don't know for sure. I just know this, that sometimes we, at least I do, I don't have a big enough view of what probably took place at the cross before he went there. They drape him with purple, a sign of royalty, because that's what purple was used for. And they even make a crown. They twist this crown and they they make it out of thorns. <laughs> oh, I've, I've stepped on thorns before. I've fallen. In, I remember, I think it was Sam and I, we were canoeing once. Remember that in New Brunswick, we were canoeing. We got a little bit too far into the current on one uh, little bend in the river. And we went into some bushes. And it wasn't a bad, you know, the bushes were overhanging the river and we kind of slipped into the bushes. Now I was in the stern of the canoe, Sam was in the bow. And, you know, I've hit bushes before, you know, I'm okay. I do try to stay on the river in the canoe. But anyways, we're going down and all of a sudden Sam's like, oh, oh. And I said, what's the matter? We had gone into a hawthorn bush, okay. The hawthorn bushes have, you know, big thorns on them that are like nails, okay. And I had put my son right into there. And uh, he came out quite scratched up. That's why he looks like he does, okay, just so you know. But, but listen, I, I, I was glad it didn't happen to me. I can say that. And uh, I said, quit your complaining. Let's move on. You know, we did. But anyways, we got downriver. But listen, all of us have had those kind of experiences where we've been pierced with a thorn. But can you imagine taking a whole bunch of thorns in a, that kind of thing, long thorns, and they would twist that together and plant that on your head. When they say they planted it, they planted it. That means they went in. All instantly, all these thorns right into the brow and in the, around the, the hairline. That would just be excruciating, right? It would, it would be terrible pain that would go. And then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. I'm thankful that Jesus is the one who takes our pain. He takes our suffering. He takes our shame, doesn't he? In the book of Genesis, you remember, in the book of Genesis, it talks about uh, the very fact that Jesus, or that in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse of sin came, one of the results of the curse of sin was thorns, wasn't it? Thorns and thistles would grow. Before that, there wasn't thorny plants. There weren't, well, probably the rose bush was there, but it didn't have thorns on it, those kind of things. And I, I think of that because Jesus took upon himself the curse of sin, even original sin. And it was placed upon him. Not just in a figurative sense, but in a literal sense too, wasn't it? He felt those thorns. And I I think of that because back there in the garden when Adam first realized that he was now a sinner and he was condemned to death and all those things, 
And when God came and said, because of your sin, you're going to have these experiences. You're going to have to toil and get your food out of the ground now and toil and labor for it. And also out of the ground will come thorns and thistles, right? And I'm sure Adam thought, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. And then he's out there the next day and he's got his tools and he's trying to make a, 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 you know, survive using the ground. And all of a sudden he says, oh, look at that weed. And he grabs that, boom, oh, God was right. And Adam would have felt that first pain of the thorn. Later, as Adam aged and, and his body began to shut down, and he realized that that was ultimately the consequence of sin, which was death. And death approached, and then one day death caught him, didn't it? And Adam died. But really, in Adam, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all been condemned. We all are under the curse. And the only one who can lift the curse is the one who was perfect and innocent in every way, the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. And the crown of thorns representing that on him in doing that. They smote him. They hit him. And it says that uh, in in verse uh, 19 there, and then they struck him on the head with a reed. Now can you imagine, this is after the, the crown of thorns is on, and now you come along with a reed, and you know, whack, whack, whack. It's not just being slapped in the head, it's driving those thorns further, further down in and doing that. And they spat on him, the bowing of the knee, and they worshipped him. And again, picture, this is the whole garrison. Whether the whole garrison is present watching, and a few are doing it, or all of them are doing it, I don't know for sure. I just know that no matter what, it was not just one person that was involved in in doing all this. It was a lot. We read in uh, Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 26, verse 53, and it says this of Jesus, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? This was in the garden scene and Matthew records this dialogue in his account. And as they come to get Jesus, remember Peter takes his sword out and Jesus makes him put it away. And he says, don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels? We know from the scripture, from the Old Testament, that even one angel of God can destroy thousands, okay? Just so you know. And yet, he says, and he uses the term, 12 legions of angels. A legion was uh, a group of up to 10 cohorts, okay? Uh, In the first century anyways, that would put it at about 5,000 to 6,000 men, all right? In each legion. So when he says 12 legions of angels, Jesus could have easily called down 60,000 or more, right? And he could have done that at any time, right from the garden all the way through. So we've said, why didn't he do that? Why wouldn't he do that? I mean, why wouldn't he just make them, you know, pay for what they're doing? Because Jesus had to pay for our sins. He's the only one. He's the only one that could do it. No one else could. None of those soldiers, how good they were or how bad they were, whatever, they couldn't pay for their own sin. Any of those people in the crowd, they couldn't pay for their sin. You know, those religious rulers that wanted to have him dead in the first place, they couldn't pay for their sin. I couldn't pay for my sin. You couldn't pay for your sin. Only Jesus could pay for our sins. So he had to go to the cross. So he willingly went to the cross. He endured that for us. 
Well, that's Jesus and the soldiers, all right? That's the scene. And the scene shifts a little bit. Let's go down a little further because you come to chapter 21 and uh, of uh, chapter 21, excuse me, of uh, verse 21. <clears throat> and I got to look for my, my slide with this. And you have this. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And you have uh, another image here as this thing, this scene shifts. They take Jesus and the soldiers mock him, right? And they led him out to crucify him. And when they did that, they would have put a cross beam across his shoulders, okay? For him to carry the cross. Now, sometimes we see it maybe as a, we think of it as the traditional cross with the vertical piece that's attached to it. And he would have dragged that whole cross. And that's most likely not what would have taken place. It would have been far too heavy for a man to, to drag along, especially in his condition, having lost a lot of blood all, already. And typically, that vertical piece would have stayed planted in a ground somewhere, and it would have been a constant reminder that that was a place of execution. The cross member that would go across that and would be eventually strapped to that would uh, hold you know, the, the hands of someone. The wrists would be you know, nailed to that piece. That was something that the criminal himself, typically, would have to compel or have to carry. And part of it was the shame of it. Because the Bible refers to the cross as a great emblem of shame. Crucifixion was a shameful thing. It was the worst way to go. The, the Romans, I have told you before, they invented a new word coming out of the cross. The, the pain that would associate it with it was excrucio, or out of the cross, excruciating pain. And not only was it devised to make such you know, a person go through such agony and, and pain, but it was also something very shameful. They would take and strap you to this so you couldn't move really too much. And they would make you walk the road up to the place of execution. And as you did so, people would come out and they would rail against you and they would accuse you of your crime. And it was a very much a public spectacle. And people were compelled to come out. You couldn't just hide in your house and say, I don't really want to know what's going on out there. The Romans made sure so that civil order was maintained that everybody knew what was taking place. So, in reality, all of Jerusalem was there. They were compelled to come out and watch this one who's condemned to die bear his cross. And as he would walk and stumble and go up the way, and you can imagine it would have been quite a process, would have been a very hefty piece of wood, and it would have been hard to do that. And by the way, you, you hold your hands out like this and see how long you can do it, just without a cross on you. Tell me how long you can do that. You know, remember in the army, they used to punish us when we stood in formation sometimes, or actually it was strengthening us, but make us stand like this. And, uh, you know, at first I hated it. And then by the end of basic training, I could do that for all day if I had to, you know. And we liked it. Kind of weird how it is. But, you know, I look at that and I think, but you try that. Most people can't do it very long. Most, most athletic people can't even do it that long because they don't, they don't, you don't use these muscles just to do this all the time. But to do that, stand there like that and feel the pain and feel how it works. And here's Jesus as he's walking up there, holding that out. 
And I'm sure it was hard on his arms, his shoulders, and his back already being shredded. We read of that. Goes from that scene to now a man named Simon. And it says Simon of Cyrene. He was from a place called uh, Cyrene in northern Libya there. And that's where he would have been from. He was a Jew, most likely part of the diaspora Jews, the scattered Jews. And he was coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So there he was. He's, he's celebrating Passover. And he has, he has two sons with him, Alexander and Rufus. They're mentioned in the Bible. Isn't that great? Wouldn't it be good to get your name in the Bible, at least for something good, all right? Just being there. The Bible endures forever. Their names are there. They're recorded for the Word of God. Isn't that great? And it's interesting that Mark records them because when Mark is written, uh, most likely the last of the gospel writers, well into the first century Christianity, as Mark is writing here, his historical record, and Alexander and Rufus were well known, apparently. They were known among Christians. So those that would have been reading the Gospel of Mark was it Alexander and Rufus. Oh, his father was Simon. Simon's the one that was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. And that's what it says. They compelled a certain man. What it is, is as a criminal was going along, and Jesus is not a criminal, but he was condemned as one. He's going along, and he could no longer physically carry that. So they, the Romans, again, they had great authority, right? They're the civil authorities. They would compel somebody, and it was an order, and you could not violate, you could not deny it. It was not like, hey, you, can you do this? It was, you will do this, and you had to. The Bible um, actually talks about that as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, remember Jesus as he's teaching, and he says, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. The word that is used there to compel, same word. And he's in reference to a Roman soldier who was, the Romans didn't have um, mechanized vehicles to haul all their gear, all right? Their armor, all that. They didn't wear their armor all the time. They just, you know, dressed lightly and they would carry that stuff. And if they actually were, they were marching along through whatever town, Instead of them carrying it, they actually had the authority to look at anybody and say, you, carry my stuff. Carry it. Now, can you imagine the Jews? They despised that. Because here was Rome, a Gentile nation, those heathens, and they're in our land, and they're telling me i got to carry their armor around. And Jesus says, whoever compels you to go a mile, go too. By the way, a mile was the legal limit that the Romans could compel you to carry something. They couldn't compel you to go further. And in the Holy Land, even to this day, if you walk through there, there are milestones, okay, along the ancient roads. And those milestones were markers to not only tell you how far you've gone, but it was for that reason. All right, I've made my mile. Here's your stuff. Get somebody else to carry it, you dogs. You know, that's the way the Jews looked at the Romans. And Jesus says, walk two miles. That's a testimony. Listen, Jesus didn't have to carry his cross. Simon later was compelled to carry it and and did so. <clears throat> Go back to that. And by the way, it was a it was a terrible thing. The the piece, by the way, the cross member was the patubulum, I I think patubulum or something like that, uh, in the Latin, and it's the cross member that was the horizontal piece. And uh, it was that uh, section that he he would have been compelled to carry. Um it was also something that designated great shame. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, remember this section about Jesus? It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here again, the Bible indicates the cross was not a sign at this point anyways, was not a sign of um, something you'd go and worship. It wasn't something that you would go and you know hang in your house or anything like that. Not then anyways. It was a sign of shame. And it was a most shameful way of dying. Later we'd learn, because Jesus would have been, like others, stripped naked and hung on a cross. It was a very shameful thing. Yet he endured that shame. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Now today you could argue that the cross is a sign of victory because the cross did not hold Jesus. So I don't have anything against seeing crosses or anything like that. I, I understand that. But again, sometimes we, we sterilize things and we don't realize really what it is at the heart of it. That the cross was something that was despised in that. Um, move on here, but we have uh, uh, this account. And by the way, 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18 says this, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's true when Paul is writing that in the first century, and he would say that the message of the cross, because that was the central part of his message, the message of the crucifixion of Christ, it was foolishness to people. What? You know, that's a sign of execution. That's a sign of death. That's reserved for criminals. And how can you be saved through a cross? Well, you're saved through the person who died on that cross. And that cross did not hold him. The grave did not hold him. He rose again. And that's the gospel message, isn't it? If you'll trust him and believe in him, you'll be saved from your sins. It's that simple. And he willingly gave himself for us in that. The shame that would have been involved. You can imagine Simon. Let's back up to Simon because I'm thinking of him as as, uh, Simon is there. And he now is compelled. He's one of all these people, maybe maybe hundreds, probably thousands of people that are lying the way to the place called Golgotha. And, I mean, what's the chances you're going to be picked, right? <laughs> well, he's picked. He's picked. I'm sure immediately he realized, oh, this, this is all. I'm sure as a dad, he's now, he's got two sons, Rufus and Alexander. They're with him. And, and they're seeing you know, their father being compelled to carry a guy's cross to the place of execution. There probably was great shame in that. Uh, we don't quite realize that. But you know what? There's, there's salvation too. There's salvation too. And the reason I say that, I get that sort of through Scripture. Uh, I say sort of. It is through Scripture. But in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 13 Paul is writing to the Roman believers and in, in, at Rome, and he writes and he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. The, word, the, the person Rufus there, by tradition uh, handed on, is the same Rufus that was there mentioned in Mark's gospel. And that's why I say he was probably well known uh, in the early church. And when Paul writes and he says, Greet Rufus. Uh, it's most likely the same Rufus. So why is he numbered among the Christians? Well, he's numbered among the Christians most likely just because of like the rest of us, because he saw what took place. And there he was with his two eyes witnessing this, his father being the one compelled to do this. And he would have also been the one uh, later on to, to trust Christ. So he was able to take the shame of that event 
and the horridness of everything and realized that it was part of God's plan. And he was saved. He's numbered among the, among the Christians, special Christians in that. Evidently, something took place in the heart. And you'd say it probably took place in the heart of Simon as well. Because uh, his, his children believe, at least, on that. Well, you have the soldiers, and you have the scene of, of Simon there. But you also have the scene of the place of the skull. The place of the skull. It says, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. You have here, the, again, Mark's gospel, his record of the actual event that takes place. The place is important uh, in that it was a place called the place of the skull. Now today there is a place in uh, what used to be the old part of Jerusalem, uh, in, in part of the city. It was actually outside the, the walled city of Jerusalem of the first century, just outside of it, and it's a hill that is a rocky outcropping. And on the face of it, if you look at it, it looks like a skull, all right? And there's pictures, and that's called uh, Gordon's Calvary is what it is. If you looked it up on the Internet or whatever, there's lots of images out there of that. And that, by, again, tradition, is the place that Jesus was crucified. There is another hill not far from there, uh, and that also could have been the, the different the place known as Golgotha. Whatever it was, it was a place that was designated by the Romans as the place outside the city, again, a sign of shame because in the city there should be order and all that. And so they would take the criminal, march them through the city, bring them outside the wall of the city. People would have to come out and they would have to witness this crucifixion take place. And it was done on a high place so that everybody could see it. And certainly both those locations make sense. But it's interesting the name of it, the place of the skull. When, when you think of a skull, it's a picture of death, isn't it? A skull is not something that's very beautiful, by the way, either. It's a place that no flesh can glory, all right? And that's the place that God chose to pay for the sins of the world through the act of his vicarious death. It was there that God the Son would hang between earth and heaven, and he would be suspended upon a cross. It was at the place of the skull, a place of death. You know, the Bible tells us that that's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. Very simple, isn't it? Uh, Romans 6.23, that is. And then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? I'm so thankful that God was able to come and pay for our sins. He was able to do that completely and fully. Payment of sin accomplished. But it was done so at a place of the, of the skull. And some have said it may have gotten that name simply because it was a place that was uh, off limits from the Jews. They didn't go near that place as best they could because it made you unclean from all the blood that had been spilled on it. And it was a place that the dogs, the wild dogs would come and they would lick up the blood that had spilled on the ground after the executions took place. If you read Psalm 22, it says that dogs have compassed me about in reference to the crucifixion. That also could be a derogatory term to the Gentiles because the Jews called the Gentiles dogs as unclean things. And it could be a reference to the Romans that were encompassing him about. 
Nevertheless, it was there at the very darkest place, at the place that so much blood had been spilled, that, the, that God would spill his own blood. And there he would die in our place, having accomplished all of that for us. I'm thankful for that, because without that, uh, it would be a, a place that uh, was just another place where blood was spilled, wasn't it? Psalm 22 and verse 18 talks about that. It talks about the hard-hearted soldiers, the callousness of that. Most of the people that were there were very callous. And yet, you know the story from the other gospel account where one soldier looks to him and says, truly this was the Son of God. And there's faith. It's a place of faith also, a place of trust. And realizing that Jesus would die in our place. And again, I cannot reiterate enough. He's not on the cross anymore. He's risen from the grave. He's off the cross. He's victorious. He's seated at the right hand of God. That's what Hebrews 12.2 says and expresses to us for that. Mark just says they crucified him. That's what it says. They crucified him. Next time we'll pick up on that a little bit. But uh, the understanding of what a crucifixion, what took place on that, uh, the scourging process was was nothing compared to what a crucifixion endured, a person endured. And it was one of those things that would have created extreme pain. And a person did not die right away. They usually died through suffocation, having not uh, the ability to lift themselves to breathe as they had to, and in Jesus' case, would have a lift off of the nails that are in your feet and uh, to lift yourself to inhale and as you dropped, you'd be in that position again. And it was a constant thing as you continued to try to breathe or I guess to exhale as you lifted up in doing that. And that's one of the things that, that he endured. And he endured it right to the end and uh, then died. And he died for us, didn't he? Well, let's pray. Father, again, I come before you. I know as we've looked at this, this is a familiar passage of scripture for many. And yet people can know the facts. They can know the under, understand what took place there. Very few would dispute that a man named Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem in those year, early years of the first century. And yet few would call him Lord. Few would understand that he truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. Some, Lord, thank you, would call out in faith, even on that very day. Thank you that, Lord... He would be risen on the third day. He would appear to many. And that thousands by those first months, thousands would come to faith in Christ. The church would be born. And today we're recipients of that. As that knowledge, as that history, as the gospel itself has been passed on from generation to generation. Help us to also do that. And today to rest in the glory of all that. We thank you for the cross. Thank you you despise the shame and that today, really, we can be victorious because of the cross and what was accomplished there. In Jesus' name, amen.